The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Jason has a night off tonight. Thanks for joining us. Another great program on tap for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Ray Shemansky. Ray is interested in the quest for truth about extraterrestrial visitation from the perspective of a former senior scientist for the government. Ray spent many years working at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, a place that is reported to have a direct and frequent UFO and alien connection. In fact, the debris from the Roswell crash is said to have ended up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Our guest, Ray Shemansky, knows the details of this. We're going to talk to him about that tonight. We will, of course, take your phone calls in the second part of the program at 844-687-7669 is our listener line. And we'd love to have your comments and questions as we continue the night. And again, that'll be in the second part of the show. We also have a bunch of great stuff coming up later in the week here. Tomorrow night, Dylan Avery, who is the director of a film called Loose Change. You've probably heard of that. Related to the 9-11 attacks. And he's also got a film out called Black and Blue. And we're going to be discussing those films plus CBD and his new documentary about that called Magic Molecule. That'll be a great discussion in the first hour of our program tomorrow night. And then in the second hour, Lee Austin will be with us to uh, talk about Flat Earth Theory. Now, I know we've spoken about that recently. And we don't like to you know, revisit too many topics too quickly here on the program. But Lee has been on the program a number of times, and he has a new concept, a new idea, and a new approach to this. So we'll have him on in the second part of the program uh, to talk about that, uh, and that is tomorrow night. Then uh, Thursday, Lee Harris will be with us. Lee Harris is an energy healer, and he'll give practical guidance, inspiration, and a clear blueprint for growth and change, including how to invoke the help of our spirit guides and angels. That's something that we could all use now and then, right? I know I could. Um, looking ahead to next week, of course, Friday will be a best of program. Uh, next week, we, I, one thing I did want to mention about next week's schedule, because if you remember a couple of weeks ago when the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burned tragically, there was a connection between Nostradamus and predicting that fire, uh, according to some people who study Nostradamus. And we quickly had a guest on. Uh, we we got him last minute. He's a Nostradamus scholar and expert uh, to talk about that connection. He said that he doesn't read it the same way. And that was John Hogue. Now, John um, was only with us for a few minutes that night. But we made him promise that we, he would come back and spend an entire program talking about Nostradamus. Um, and we're going to do that next Tuesday night. John Hogue will be with us. The whole uh, show will talk, be talking about Nostradamus and his his predictions. Many people um, believe he was a, uh, a prophet. Some people say he was just a, a guy that wrote some things down. And if you interpret them the right way, you can say they came true. Either way, um, John Hogue uh, will talk about his work. And I, I know John believes he had some um, some prophetic uh, skills or abilities, and uh, we'll talk about those with John Hope Tuesday night next week. That should be a great one as well. Uh, stop by our Facebook page, uh, Beyond Reality Radio. Also, please subscribe to mine or like mine, JV Johnson on Facebook. The easiest way to find it is just uh, look for JVJ Paranormal, and you can find my Facebook page. Give it a like and get those numbers up there. And then I'm going to send you over to YouTube. If you haven't seen the YouTube channel, it's a great place to find back shows. There is a video stream involved. We do some live streaming there. and if you So if you don't have an, a radio station option in your area and you're looking for another way to uh, participate in the show, uh, that YouTube stream is live each night. And we have a great chat room around it, too. Uh, the YouTube channel is JV Johnson on YouTube. So find that, subscribe to it, click the little bell icon so that you get notifications when we upload videos and when we do our live streaming. Uh, that's going to do it for our housekeeping stuff. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll bring our guest in again tonight. We're going to be talking with Ray Shemansky 
about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and its connection to alien and UFO phenomena. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Phone lines will be open in the second hour of the program. It's at uh, 844-687-7669. Tonight, our guest is Ray Shemansky. Ray is an author, a paranormal researcher, also a longtime worker at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where anyone who has followed the story of... uh, Alien appearances, abductions, Roswell well crash, and U.S. and government involvement of any of that knows that the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base has long been uh, a source of controversy and uh, rumored to be a site where much of this information and uh, activity has taken place. And our guests will uh, talk more about that as we have our conversation tonight. Rafe, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. So um, I want to get to know you a little bit first here before we get into the, this, the meat of this discussion. Tell us a little bit about when this type of thing, paranormal uh, anything, whether it's UFOs, aliens, ghosts, any, anything paranormal, first attracted your attention. I was 1973 in January. It was my first week on the base. I was a cooperative education student from the University of Detroit, uh, electrical engineering major. And um, about the first week, I was assigned to a mentor. His name was L. And um, we were in a two-story office building, which was connected to a 250-foot-long hangar. And on the other side of the hangar was an identical two-story office building. So he said, hey, let's go. I'll show you where the greasy spoon is at, you know, the local coffee shop. So we step out of our building and go into the connected hangar. And it's dark and it's dusty. And he turns to me and says, have you heard about our aliens? Well, wow. So I'm this co-op student. I don't know anything from aliens, from, from, you know, the man on the moon. And so we have a little conversation. He explains to me that um, the, there was a crash wreckage out west. It was brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for uh, evaluation and possible exploitation. And, you know, I eventually learned that uh, there was a widespread knowledge of Wright-Patterson's connection to UFOs because Project Blue Book had been there for nearly 22 years and it had only ended just in 1969. So that was uh, less than four years until I showed up. So the base was fairly well. Uh, they, they knew that Wright-Pat was connected. So at that point, it, it kind of lit a little spark in me. And, you know, as my career went on, I always kind of peeked around corners and talked to people about it and got a lot of reassurances that Wright-Pat had a lot to do with that. So you didn't have an interest in any of this before you started working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This all happened once you got the job there. Pretty much didn't have a clue. I mean, I can remember growing up, uh, in Detroit and uh, stargazing, that kind of thing, and being interested in the early space race. But it really wasn't until I got on base and uh, my my mentor for that that work study term uh, brought it up, and and you know I start reading everything I could when I could, and uh, that was really the beginning. When he brought it up, you um, you hadn't been there very long. Uh, you were, I guess, in, by all measures, a rookie. Um, what what do you think his motivation was for for talking to you about it so blatantly? If in fact it is such a well guarded secret in so many circles, 
Well, I think he wasn't really giving me any kind of secret. I think it was, um, you know, it was almost fraternity-like, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But I I think the real meaning of it all was that there was a connection between Wright-Patterson and the UFOs and extraterrestrials, and people were best able to talk about it in terms of us having the aliens and the crash wreckage, and they were in the tunnels. And so it kind of is this sometimes often factology, uh, sometimes mythology, that grows within the community. And then you tell the next person, because it's really something special. And, you know, you it's something that you can... Uh, uh, you know, like storytelling, like tribes, sure. you know, ancient tribes. You're passing on the story to the next generation, saying, hey, this is a special place to work. We we do special things here, and one of them just happens to be this UFO connection that Wright-Patterson has. When um, you got the job there, had you been aware of that connection prior? I know you didn't really have an interest in it, but were you? did you have any awareness of it? Nothing, absolutely nothing. I was like... Hey, a job, I'm going to get to pay for the rest of my education. Yeah. I'm going to get some experience here. I had zero clue. Absolutely not. Now, you've got to imagine, no, this is like, um, you know, pre-internet days. We're talking ancient history here. So it would have required yet another trip to a library somewhere or, you know, uh, another uh, source to try to find out information about Wright Pat. And I just didn't do it. I was just busy getting my exams done and getting, you know, ready to go off on this adventure. I, I'd really never been away from home, and I was going to be there with three other uh, young engineering students. We're all going to share an apartment. So there was just so much administrivia to do. Uh, I didn't really bother to to look up what Wright Patterson was really all about. I just said, hey, a job for an electronics engineer? Uh, sure, you're paying good money. I'm your guy. Well, you make a good point because um, we're so used to information just being thrown at us in so many directions through the digital age, whether it's social media or other digital uh, information sources, that we're almost all aware of virtually, um, not necessarily everything, but certainly pieces of almost everything. Uh, Back prior to the Internet and the digital age, unless you were specifically hunting for this kind of information, it probably wouldn't have made it uh, in front of your face. It didn't show up necessarily in any mainstream media. So if you weren't looking for it, you didn't see it. Yeah, and by 1973, you know, Project Blue Book had ended in 69, so if there was any kind of sensationalist coverage about Wright-Patterson, it had ended at least a couple of years before that. So, you know, the fact that it was it was revealed to me, uh, I think, just kind of shows how, how widespread it was. And in fact, you know, there was a thing called the U- U.S. Air Force UFO Identification Chart, and it's basically... Uh, uh, you know, us laughing at the Air Force's explanation that it's a weather balloon. And this chart has uh, all these different airborne objects. It's got, you know, the Starship Enterprise and a Klingon battleship and a classic uh, saucer-shaped UFO and, and a weather balloon. And each of these objects on the Air Force identification chart underneath it says weather balloon. <laughs> and and so, so that was very widespread back then. And today they've actually upped the ante because... Uh, they now print T-shirts with that same Air Force UFO identification chart on it. That's so hilarious. the connection between Wright Pat and UFOs didn't die in 1969 when Project Blue Book ended. It still continues to this day. Yeah, it absolutely does. When your mentor was first telling you this, saying, hey, did you hear about our aliens? Uh, did you think he was joking? Well, um, Al didn't strike me as a jokester kind of guy. He struck me as an intellectual kind of guy. And in fact, um, he proved that out because he actually spent a good portion of his career as a member of the senior executive service. So for the listeners, uh, if you look at the general service scale that they had uh, for for engineers and, and, and executives, you could go up to a GS-15. But if you were approved by Congress, you could go up one more level, and that would make you the equivalent of a flag officer, like a U.S. Uh, Army or Air Force general or a, a Navy admiral. So that is, you know, your general officer level. He actually went on to earn an SCS ranking. So he wound up being at the general officer level. So this just was not some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, fly-by-night mid-level engineer. He, he was uh, quite accomplished in his career. 
For those who might not be familiar with uh, Wright-Patterson, tell us where it's actually located geographically. Okay. Uh, geographically, if you go about 60 miles west of Columbus and you go about 60 miles north of Cincinnati, um, you'll, you'll come uh, to an intersection of Interstate 70 and Interstate 75. And Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is located... Uh, on a 45-degree angle to the southeast, about 15 miles from there. So it basically borders uh, places like Huber Heights, Fairborn. Well, see, we talk about this stuff, and we mysteriously lose our guest. This is not the first time this has happened to us, right? Anybody who listens to this program is aware that whenever we start talking about something that there is a bit of a government cover-up involved, at least one that we suspect or maybe are curious about, uh, we end up losing our guests. Are you are you with us, Ray? All right, we're going to need, need to have Slick get Ray back on the phone. So we're talking with Ray Shemansky. Ray is a long-time or was a long-time employee at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, a U.S. government facility, an Air Force facility that... Uh, has a long-standing, at least rumored, connection with alien activity and alien evidence. And in fact, some people suggest they're re, uh, reverse engineering alien technology at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Among many, many other things, the original Roswell crash debris was reported to have gone to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and it's reported to still be there. Uh, so when we get uh, our guest back on the line, Ray Shemansky, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Ray has a couple books out. Um, one is called Fifty Shades of Greys. You know, the aliens, greys. <laughs> a nice play on words. The second one is Fifty Shades of Greys, Victoria's Secret Truths. And uh, both of those books are available on Amazon, and you should check out Ray's uh, website as well. Um, just uh, Google Ray uh, Shemansky. It's S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I. What we're going to do here is I think we've got Ray back, but we need to go to break. So we're, we're going to um, take the break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Wright, Air Force, uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. How long has it been in existence? What's its military mission supposed to be? All those kind of things. You know, the, the questions that uh, anybody might have if they didn't realize there's an alien connection. And again, we will be taking your phone calls at 844-687-7669 in the second hour of the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Let's... um. First of all, we lost you there, and it's very, very curious to me. And I know that you're on a cell phone, so you know the the, the connection can get a little bit unreliable at times. But it seems like anytime we talk about this particular topic, and we talk about government involvement and cover up, uh, we always have some kind of problem. Whether it's uh, internet going out or phones being disconnected, or it, I mean, did, had, you've been at this a long time. Have you seen or experienced any of that phenomena that you might be a little oh. suspicious of? Oh, uh, definitely. I had a, um Internet problem. When I was uh, going to upload my first book, because it's self-published, and I had to upload it so that they could process it on their end uh, up at CreateSpace, and uh, the Internet connection kept failing. It, I would, and it wasn't that large of a book, 250 pages, about 100 photos, and it just kept failing. And so I had the uh, AT&T guy come out, uh, through which I had the service, and uh, he said, you're only 10 feet from your router. And he's saying, the signal's strong. There's five bars on your computer showing that you're connected. He goes, I cannot figure out why you keep getting the, the, the disconnect. And I said, well, you're the expert. You know? yeah. So now I'm really worried. I, I had him out three different times. And it was so frustrating because I'm trying to upload this book. And I'm going to just use the word coincidentally to be kind. Coincidentally, it took me a couple of days to finally get it accomplished because it just kept cutting out. And I've experienced some suspicious uh, other kind of um, communications. I would call it denial of service attacks. So I, I have some evidence, but I'm not sure I really have the proof. Well, these coincidences seem to be awfully common when, uh, whenever you circle around these topics. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about the Air Force Base itself. Uh, what's the history of the base? How long has it been there? And what is the uh, official mission of that particular Air Force Base? Well, there are probably, at any one time, 
20 to 30,000 people assigned to the base. Wow. So it, it's, it's massive. It has um, over 600 buildings. It has 8,000 acres. Uh, there's actually uh, two areas. There's an active uh, landing strip operational area called Area A, and then there's Area B, which is the more uh, businessy end of it. Air Force Research Lab headquarters is stationed there, and uh, it, it has several, uh, I think about maybe 2,000 employees, so it forms a, a big part. So you have the Air Force Research Labs is in Area B, and so uh, m- most of the major research and development that occurs for the U.S. Air Force uh, is centered there. And then um, you have other tenants. You have the Air Force Institute of Technology, and that's where people go to get graduate degrees, master's degrees, and things that are related to, uh, you know, aeronautical engineering. You can get PhDs there. Uh, There's the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center. Um, There's... um, uh, Air Force Materiel Command. And so you have the people that basically look at the requirements that the Air Force has for a new weapon system, a platform, say, uh, you know, the next F-15 or the next F-22 or the next, you know, Joint Strike Fighter. And they put all those requirements together. And they basically raise an airplane and, you know, get it put on the runway and actively defending this country, you know, from A to Z at Wright-Patterson. So, uh, it's it's a huge mission, and uh, the split is generally about mm, fifteen thousand civilians, and anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand military, uh, basically assigned to the base. And uh, I assume it's been there a while. Uh, I believe that uh, you know there was there was originally a place called McCook Field, which was downtown, uh, and then there was Wright Field, and then there was Patterson Field. McCook eventually closed, and then uh, about 1917, I believe, is when uh, I, I believe Wright Field was actually founded. And and I know for a fact that the Materials Directorate, which is now part of Air Force Research Labs, was founded there in 1917, and that's a, a good backstory for something we can talk about later when we talk about recovered metals and stuff. And uh, I believe the two bases, the Wright Field and Patterson Field, were actually joined under the Wright-Patterson name in about 1948. So uh, roughly about 1917 for the first uh, part of the actual Wright-Patterson was, was put into operation. Do you have any suspicion that the base itself was um, constructed uh, specifically with the idea in mind that uh, extraterrestrial UFO activity was going to be studied there? Well, it was constructed 30 years before anyone really heard about it. You know, 1947 is when, you know, before uh, we heard Roswell craft material was brought there. And there's no doubt that the material was brought there because two of the key witnesses who handled the material went on legal record and said that whatever was recovered there uh, went to Wright-Patterson. And that's, of course, before we heard of any uh, of this UFO activity. Um, I would suspect that if uh, if um, the federal government or the military knew of it before we did, they certainly weren't going to tell us. Yeah, but I, I think uh, 1947, uh, you know, if you look at the historical records, you go back, you know, that's that's pretty much when the thing reared its ugly head. But if you think about it, the Materials Directorate was founded in 1917. So by 1947, they had been working with uh, materials that fly in the air for 30 years. So Wright-Patterson would have been the natural place to bring this material that we really didn't understand at the time because you would have the materials experts on the base. They would have the expertise. They would have the equipment. They would have security and vaults and guards and fences. They would have secrecy oaths. They had funding. So it was really the perfect storm, the perfect place to bring something that you gathered in the desert and that displayed these unusual properties of, I can't burn it, I can't dent it, I can't cut it. So that's why Wright-Patterson would have been chosen. Okay, so 1947, we have uh, the, the Roswell incident. We've got a crash. We've got um, various and conflicting reports of what happened there. Um, from what you know, based on your time at Wright-Patterson, what happened? Well, Jesse Marcel and uh, 
Sheridan Cavett were sent with the rancher, Mac Brazel, to go back up near Corona, about 70 miles northwest of Boswell, and pick the stuff up. And, and in their testimony, especially Jesse Marcel, he said, we picked up thousands of little pieces, thousands. And the largest piece he ever mentions is about a two-foot by a three-foot piece. But Jesse also said in an interview with Stanton Friedman, that material was not of this planet, and he went on to say why. And he also said, I do know it went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Well, then you have uh, another person, Thomas DuBose, a general, who worked as the chief of staff in the 8th Army Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth, and that is the location through which the material passed from Roswell on its way to Wright-Patterson and late in his life, General DuBose signed an affidavit that said that material went to Wright Patterson. So, so it, you have two two immutable sources. Yeah. So it arrives at Wright Patterson. Um, what do they do with it? Well, most likely, what would have happened is they would have brought a small portion of it. You know, Jesse said I picked up thousands of pieces that were like one inch by one inch. So they probably would have brought a briefcase full, made arrangements to meet with the head of the materials director, and said, "Look, guys." Some guy picked this up. It has some unusual properties with our cursory testing, and we would like you to tell us everything you can about this material, and we'll give you, you know, X amount of dollars, X amount of, of weeks or months to look at it, but just write us a report. Tell us what you can, and I'm sure that there were some conversations going back and forth. Eventually, the materials directorate and maybe some other labs at the time that were in existence would have looked at it and said, here's what we know, here's a report. All the people who handled it, and there would have been just a few, maybe a few top scientists, maybe a, maybe a dozen. They would have been sworn to secrecy. There would have been one or maybe two copies of the report, and off it went into history. The um, the, the rumors that surround this um, have been circulating for a very, very long time, and there are a lot of people that are emphatic that the story you just told is the actual truth. Um, were you ever given any... Uh, access to seeing any of that in of uh, that material, or were you ever given any access to to files that would support uh, what oh, we're being absolutely told? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. No. I I worked in a different area. Most of my work was involved in in software. So uh, no, uh, I I would imagine that 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 secret got buried back in 1947 on the base, and and that's not to say that that scenario didn't replay itself. You know, throughout the decades, if they recovered other things, then it probably would have gone right back to right path for the same reason. In, nine, in 2017, the materials lab celebrated 100 years on the base. I mean, that's, that's a lot of expertise. That's a lot of experience. And if, uh, you know, other agencies were to bring them things that were picked up, I'm sure they, they would uh, take it to Wright Patterson for the exact reasons that the Roswell stuff was brought there in 1947. Ray, I want to take you back to the story that you told how you how this whole concept and this idea was introduced to you by your mentor. There was some, um, well, I guess, misinterpretation of that. What was what what was misinterpreted uh, about that story? Well, most of the people who have uh, interviewed me are talking about this. Uh, they tried to get me to say that that was the proof, that was the evidence that, indeed, all those events happened. And I think the clarification is is that what it really represents is the fact that almost the entire community at, at Wright-Patterson was aware of the connection between Wright-Patterson and UFOs because of the Project Blue Book and other things that were written locally about the Air Force UFO investigation. So it really, I never viewed it so much, and even in the long term, uh, never viewed it so much as, well, this is evidence because this guy, you know, went on to become a member of the SES, and and, and he must have known because he was a high-level, a very high-ranking civilian. Well, he really wasn't at the time he made the revelation. And I could ask, you know, Doug in accounting, hey, Doug, what do you know about the connection? And he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're well aware that, you know, the right pet guys in the Foreign Technology Division uh, on the other side of the base in Area A, you know, they, they had worked the, the UFO investigation for over 20 years. So it was, it was I guess, um, a widely kept secret 
that White Pad and UFOs were connected. So, and, you, and that's what it's about. Yeah, you said there was about fifteen thousand. I think that was the number you used. Civilian employees at Wright Patterson. How many of those, or whatever the number is, uh, were professionals such as yourself? People that may have actually been involved in uh, whether it was reverse engineering or studying or explaining or hiding uh, this connection with the uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials. Well, Air Force Research Lab headquarters is there, and you had the um, sensors directorate. Well, they're now called directorates instead of labs, but they're essentially a lab. You know, you have have their specialties. You have, you know, sensors lab. You have materials lab. You have propulsion lab, a human performance lab. And, and so there, there's a lot of those disciplines that could be applied to anything that wasn't ours that we either recovered or were given. So... Uh, you know, the hardcore people, you know, who actually looked at that initially, you know, could have numbered in the dozens. But as years go by, as other things are brought in, now think about it, the foreign technology division is there, and their job is to get things like MIG fighters. And they have. They have a MIG fighter sitting out in front of their building mm-hmm. that they bought from some country. Well, you bet that thing was taken apart and examined and, and evaluated for its capabilities. You know, that job alone might have required hundreds or thousands of people to look at it. So I think it's indeterminate how many people would, would look at, let's say, recovered metals or, or some recovered object, like maybe an integrated circuit or something. Tens, maybe hundreds you know, through the years, uh, I'm not really sure I can put a, put a finger on it. But the fact is that you have everything you need to do that kind of a job at Right Path. Yeah. And uh, what about, and we only have a couple minutes here before our top of the hour break, but what about um, actual storage facilities in space? How much space is available to, say, hide alien spray, spacecraft or, or debris from a crash? Well, you think about it, it was described as in being thousands of one-inch square parts, so you don't need much, you know, a couple of boxes. The right pad has, uh, I'm going to just throw out a number, I'm probably wrong, but they have two, three dozen hangars, uh, each with, you know, maybe a minimum width of 200 feet across and 100 feet deep. So, you know, you could you could store a thousand thirty uh, foot crafts uh, on the base and, you know, and close the doors on them. So there's, there's plenty of space there. They have over 600 buildings. And again, you know, we're not talking, you know, a uh, 90 foot spacecraft, even though we could fit maybe a dozen of those in a single hangar. Right. Uh, and, the, and the Air Force owns millions of square feet where they store all the relics that eventually make it to the Air Force Museum. So they've got more space than they ever need. Now, you're, you're not the only person to come forward with much of this information. However, even given the numbers that you're talking about, uh, the number of people, that whether they were military or civilian, that have been on the base, how is it such a well-kept secret? Well, I think it's neat to know, and that's always the way it's been. Now, look at the presidents, Carter, Reagan, um, uh, Clinton, you know, all those guys wanted uh, to be briefed on the UFO thing, and they weren't. Uh, simply because they didn't have need to know. So it's the same thing, you know, and compartmentalization. Now, you, you think about it. They bring in the debris in a briefcase. They take it to the director of the materials directorate. He p- handpicks a couple of scientists and engineers. Now you only got five or six people knowing about it. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't take, and in many cases, they, they might give a scientist uh, a piece of metal and say, just tell us what you know about this and don't ask any questions. And, and there's there's nothing he can say because he just simply had a piece of metal. So I, this it's a similar to what we've learned about maybe the JFK conspiracy or other conspiracies where the information is so compartmentalized, you don't put it all together, therefore you don't really have a story to tell. Yes, and, and then, you know, you swear the one or two guys that ran the machine, you know, like a... Yeah, maybe an EDX machine or, you know, they're, whatever they're looking at the elemental composition of the metal or they're looking at the isotopic ratios of the metal. And they just run in the machine and five minutes later, well, today, I'm not sure in 1947, but today, in a couple of minutes, they've got that information and, you know, they sign off on it and, and away it goes and they're sworn to secrecy. So it's really pretty easy to do. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about with our guest tonight, Ray Shemansky. Check out his website. Check out his books, 50 Shades of Greys. That's G-R-E-Y-S, Greys as in the alien race. Um, and we're going to take your calls and questions at 844-687-7669. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Don't go away. We have a lot more to come.
Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program thanks for joining us uh if you're listening on one of the radio stations carrying the program i think you should thank them as well for carrying it we appreciate their participation and their membership in the affiliate family for beyond reality radio uh, if you're listening online or you're listening as a download later, we welcome you as well. Tonight, we're talking with Ray Shemansky. Ray is a paranormal researcher and author, a longtime employee at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We all know the connection, at least rumored connection, which uh, Ray is clearing up for us, the rumored connections of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and UFO and alien activity. We're going to bring him back in just a moment. I'll remind you, tomorrow night, uh, Dylan Avery will be with us for the first part of the program tomorrow. He's the director of a film called Loose Change, which looked at the controversy over the 9-11 conspiracy. And also uh, Black uh, Black and Blue is another film that looks at police brutality. And then uh, we'll be talking about his new documentary. It's called Magic Molecule, and it's about CBD. In the second hour of the program, Lee Austin will return. He has been on the show a few times. He's got a new idea surrounding flat earth theory that he wanted to present to us. So he'll be with us for a, uh, a little while tomorrow night in the second half of the show. Thursday, Lee Harris will be with us to talk about his work as an energy healer. He'll also give practical guidance, inspiration, and a clear blueprint for growth and change, including how to invoke the help of our spirit guides and angels. So you can see we've got a lot of great shows coming up. Um, I want to bring our guest, Ray Shemansky, back into the show now. Ray, I mentioned, and you have mentioned, the words reverse engineering uh, several times. Were you personally ever involved in doing any of this reverse engineering work, whether it was with uh, alien uh, technology or uh, human technology? Yeah, it was clearly human technology. Uh, looked like uh, perhaps a projectile of some sort with a control system and my job was to uh, look at some of the circuit boards and create a schematic diagram so that the more senior engineers at that point could look at it and try to figure out what the uh, function of the board was and then you know when all of the boards were completed and we showed the connections on a giant schematic then they could uh, get an idea of the capabilities of um, the object from which those uh, printed circuit cards that were loaded with components, uh, what it actually did. <clears throat> we know that, um, you know, the Soviets during the Cold War had a lot of uh, unusual technology and craft. We also know that uh, our own military was doing many of the same things, testing things, experimental aircraft. And often um, I think there's a good reason to believe that some things that are called ufo or alien craft might be misidentified human technology how common do you think that is or was to misidentify our technology yeah whether, or alien technology yeah, well, well i guess you know you hear about the f-117s and and you know that was they were flying that stuff things that might have gone off range you know they did a lot of experimental things out at edwards air force base and, you know, there was some population around there, not much, but there, there's some. So I think some of the reports are certainly attributable to that. Uh, it, it, it makes sense. But I think, uh, you know, uh, for the most part, there are enough substantial cases out there uh, to prove the existence of the phenomena. Yeah. I think that's a good point, too. What about uh, the famous Hangar 18, where that Roswell material was supposedly taken? Is that Does that really exist? You know, um, my theory is that there was probably some writer who had to put an article on Wright Patterson together, and he wanted to create something that the, the reader, reading public, could hang on to, a point of reference. So I think that somebody invented the, the title Hangar 18, and then they said, yeah, that's where they store all the stuff of Wright-Patterson, because we have 600 buildings there and 8,000 acres. You know, they're going to go, oh, it's, it's all scared on the base. No, so let me give you a solid object. Now, that being said, I actually went on a hunt 
for, you know, if there was a hangar 18, what building would it be? And I've narrowed it down to, you know, a, a handful, a good half a dozen buildings that I think were in the right place at the right time, had the right people working in there, were close enough to uh, the active flight line into which, you know, they, they used to fly the, the B-29 bomber that was loaded with the material in. So, you know, if there is a hangar 18, uh, you know, I think it's probably an area B. But that said, we don't really need a hangar 18 to make the phenomena true because, again, Jesse Marcel said, I picked up thousands of one-inch square pieces in the desert. You don't need a hangar, okay? And, and, and hangars don't generally house labs. Now, they do on some occasions, but most likely, if it's a piece of material, it'd go to the materials directorate. It'd be just a standard building, you know, filled with electronics and that sort of thing. So not really a hangar. You don't really don't really need a hangar to examine the metals picked out of the desert. Well, a lot of what um, we keep going back to is the Roswell crash. But I know as well that others have contended that uh, Wright-Patterson has actually living alien creatures in it, um, in addition to full-size alien craft. Do you know anything about any of that, and uh, do you suspect that might be true? Well, I've heard the rumors of that. Um, but I've also heard many other rumors that, that weren't Wright-Pat, but were UFO stuff. But again, if we go back to the basics and you say, why Wright-Patterson? Why would they do that? Well, you have the expertise. You have Air Force Research Lab headquarters, meaning you've got tons of technical expertise. If you don't own that, you can always rent time by a professor who's got a certain uh, level of expertise in, in some subject, you have the, the security, you have secrecy oaths, you have funding, you have contracting. So you have everything you could possibly want. Uh, bring it in the middle of the night. There's not many people out there except for security police, and they're probably tipped off. Bring it in a dark truck, bring it into a building, and, and nobody's the wiser except the person who's working on it. So, again, it's just one of many perfect places to do that kind of research. One of the things I noticed about uh, your website and uh, information about you and about your book, you mentioned Men in Black. You say, are the Men in Black real? Uh, what do you know about Men in Black? Well, I actually had an encounter uh, with a gentleman who was standing uh, outside a building, and, and we already mentioned that before, the Foreign Technology Building, which is now the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, I think, NASIC. And um, he was standing out there, and he was dressed in a dark suit. You know, this is like late May, so it's super hot, super humid in Dayton that time of year. And he's sitting in the shadow of a tree, you know, looking at a smartphone. And he's got the, the black hat on and, the, and the, the dark suit. And, it, you know, it, I was playing a golf course at the time, and it just struck me. Bam, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks. So I went over and actually talked to the guy. Uh, actually, I talked to him twice. Uh, point blank asked him if he was, you know, I knew which building he worked in, and asked him if he was, you know, a man in black. And kind of in a casual, humorous sort of way, but I was, I was kind of in a semi-panic at that point. And he, he of course, he denied it. And uh, then I checked with somebody who actually uh, worked in that building and said that they knew the individual and claimed that they were just a, you know, normal analyst. But then again, when I quizzed my friend and said, well, do you know everything that guy does? And he said, well, frankly, I don't. And I said, so there is a possibility that he could indeed be a man in black. And he looked at me, he goes, yeah, quite possibly. You know, because, again, you've got this compartmentalization, and many times you don't know what the guy next door is doing. So who knows if the guy isn't employed in that capacity at, at some time during the day, week, or month. And that brings me to black helicopters. Uh, if they're going to be anywhere, they're going to be a right pat, right? Do they, have you seen anything like that, that, you know, these mis myth mysterious or mythical black helicopters that show up? Um, I've seen them, but not at right pat. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> really? Have you seen and I, can, I I cannot tell you where, but oh, okay. I, I have seen unmarked helicopters. In fact, I probably saw a cluster of five or six. Can you and tell? They were, clear, they were clearly unmarked. Can you tell us if they were? Were they? Were they coming looking for you, or did you just happen no, to observe it? No, I think they. I think they were just uh, uh, returning to to uh, home base. I see. I see. Um, 
your book uh, talks about all of this, of course. Um, when you say that you're out to for the to to look for the truth, you're you're on a quest for the truth about UFOs and ETs. Um, I mean, you've got access to information that many many don't, or you've been able to observe things that many many people haven't. Um, do you think we're going to get to a point where there's going to be some kind of reveal on all this? Uh, one, I'm not sure we're ready for it. Uh, two, there's been some interesting things. I think just today or yesterday there was some revelation that the I-team has now got a paper trail showing that the government actually released the Tic Tac and the Gimbal and some other video, you know, that's really been splashed across the front pages you know, in all the TV shows. So it it's, it appears as if uh, somebody is, is letting that go. The reason why they're doing it, I'm not sure, is a full disclosure. Uh, it could just be that, you know, they're saying, forget everything we told you before, but we're, we're just talking present day. We're recognizing now that there's some anomalous things in our airspace, and, and we want to make sure that, you know, our military pilots and our commercial pilots are reporting this because we're now concerned that it's happening more often. So is this really a disclosure? No, because it really doesn't discuss this, discuss all the things in the past, like class recoveries. It's just saying, you know, we're noticing some, some objects in the sky, and I wouldn't be surprised, wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the other shoe's going to fall and it's going to be another one of those planet Venus, you know, dancing stars, <laughs> ice crystals in the sky kind of explanations. Yeah. So, so I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, those, those explanations are, are uh, very, very common and very frequent and almost laughable at times. What's the website for people to go to find out more information about your work and where can they find the books? Uh, the books are available on Amazon. Uh, the best thing to do is type in three keywords, 50, Shades, and UFO. And they'll find my books on Amazon. They'll find uh, recordings of other interviews and some other things like that. And uh, they can look up uh, Ray Shemansky on a Wix site. I have a pretty humble uh, footprint out there on the web. Uh, <laughs> and I'm happily retired after 40 years and uh, never thought this would be a second career, it, although it's turning into that. So sure. uh, they can uh, find me on, on Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, and type in my name. Right. They can probably it should, come, should come up. Yeah, they can probably Google, Google, Google you and get there, too. Now, um, we're going to have a whole other segment on the other side of this break, but we've got about four minutes here. I want to ask you, because we mentioned things like phones being disconnected. You said you had a problem with the Internet when you were trying to upload the book the first time. Any other yeah. misadventures or anything that is a little suspicious while you were researching this book? Uh, well, one of the interesting things that happened to me in Exeter when uh, I went out to the site of the Muscarello, the 1965 sighting, and I was sitting in my car, and a disembodied voice appeared outside the driver's window and asked me what I was doing there, and I explained I was a researcher, and they said, well, they're not coming back. Uh, there's nothing uh, here for you to see. You need to leave. And I didn't see a car approach my car or anything, so somebody had either come out of the woods or dropped out of the sky or who knows what. And uh, they said that to me on three different occasions as I was trying to explain my presence there. And I was, I was stunned. I was, I was pretty shocked. And I just finally uh, said, I, I caved. I said, well, okay, fine, I'm going to leave. And I did because I had no idea who they were, what they were, and, and you know whether they had an army of people in, in the adjoining right. woods. So right. I basically left. It was a pretty scary situation. Wow. That is scary. Um you know, I, we've had other folks talk about similar incidents. I mean, you just don't know, and you don't know the lengths they'll go to to prevent uh, information from getting out. I mean, we've seen some things that are pretty extreme. Uh, yeah, I, I also had an, an incident in um, uh, Rendlesham when I went there, and I noticed that there was a car parked all day at the entry point where most researchers would enter to kind of retrace the steps of Penniston and Burles and the boys. And it turns out that the car was registered in a town two hours away, and that town is host to a uh, intelligence center. And I thought, that's strange. Maybe they were observing the people coming in and out of Rendlesham Forest that day, you know, trying to get a bead on who's doing research, which I thought was unusual, a little paranoid on my part. But nonetheless, you know, somebody wasn't just there, you know, on a, uh, I'm in the neighborhood. It actually came from a place that, that hosts an intelligence center two hours distant from Rendlesham Forest. 
Ray, the first book um, is subtitled Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. What's the difference between the first and the second book? Well, the first book, um, I went to famous sites, and I tried to find uh, new witnesses. I tried to interview old witnesses. Uh, in the second book, I did a two-year case study of a family that has had multi-generational contact with entities that they're not quite sure what they are. Uh, under regression, the principal character in the book, Victoria, after whom the book was named, uh, she mentions things like, uh, iridescent insectoids in robes, mantises, uh, grays. So she, she mentions, uh, a many different species of, uh, entities, aliens, if you will, that she's come in contact with, uh, since, uh, she was a young girl. And the regressions that were performed, uh, she's had four regressions performed. Those regressions were performed by three of the top hypnotherapist or, you know, medical therapist, whatever their official titles are, in the world. And they include Dr. Leo Sprinkle, uh, Yvonne Smith, and Barbara Lamb. So uh, through those regressions, uh, we learned that a lot of these very fuzzy memories that she had from childhood as a girl, she had these memories of ant people crawling around her ceiling and that type of thing. Those were actually screen memories, and she was actually being abducted and uh, has been uh, unwillingly participating in an alien breeding program. So oh, wow. I collected all the photographic, clinical, medical, uh, narrative evidence, put it to the stress test, and uh, that which didn't pass, didn't get published, those things that I think make a strong case for that reality are contained in the book. So did you say that there were screen memories? Is that what you said? Yeah, a screen memory is either induced by the person who abducted you or there's something that they're self-induced. So a lot of people who are contactees, they'll see an alien gray that have an oversized eye, and there will be sometimes a self-induced screen memory where they'll remember seeing owls in a dream or deer or any large-eyed animal where, in fact, they're trying to put a memory there that is allows them to cope with the trauma having been taken from their room and perhaps subjected to some kind of medical testing. In other cases, the abductors themselves are known to impart a screen memory so that the person who has been abducted will not remember uh, exactly what happened to them. And you say she, and I think you said her name was Victoria, which is in the title of the book there, has been yeah. in an alien breeding program? Yeah, she has had, um, uh, under regression, uh, she explains that uh, she believes that they're removing eggs from her to perhaps be fertilized. And in, in other um, cases, she talks about something being placed inside of her. And if you read about, if you do abduction research, you know, you read the uh, classic books like uh, Dr. Jacobs, uh, Yvonne Smith, Barbara Lamb, uh, Dr. Sprinkle, uh, you'll discover that uh, the the theory is, is that when pe- the, the women believe something's put inside of them, it's a developing fetus and they'll gestate it for 30 to 60 days and then it'll, it, it, is a very critical stage in the fetus development, and then it'll be removed. And uh, this will account for a lot of what people think were false pregnancies when really uh, they weren't pregnant, but they had actually hosted a fetus for some time, and it caused a hormonal change in the body, and it gets detected, and then suddenly they're, quote, no longer pregnant. So this type of thing is a result of females being involved in an alien breeding program. Now you you chronicle this in your second book, um, but and you chronicle this particular case. How common do you think this is? I don't know. Uh, the people who really know the answer to that are some of the names I mentioned before: uh, uh, Dr. David Jacobs, Avon Smith, Barbara Lamb, uh, Dr. Sprinkle, because they have repressed thousands of contactees. Uh, I, I think probably the best book on the entire phenomena was a book put out. You know. Years ago, by Dr. Jacobs, it's called The Threat, and therein um, he uses the 
testimony of hundreds of his patients uh, to describe what's going on. And he took all the familiarities between their cases and was able to make some uh, pretty uh, interesting points about what the agenda is and how it happens and, and that type of thing. It's, it's a fantastic, insightful book, but I use that as a reference to uh, bounce what Victoria was telling me about her own situation, and I could see that a lot of what she was telling me was included in the book uh, and other books. But uh, when I quizzed her, she said, no, I've, I really never read any of those books, so I, I would like be a copycat. And clearly, she didn't fake three world-class therapists into believing her right. story. Uh, so it's, I think it's, it's got a, a very good foundation. Do you have a sense, uh, and maybe maybe you don't know the answer to this, or maybe she didn't even know the answer to this, but are those fetuses human fetuses or are they alien fetuses? Well, according to the research, um, you know, they're uh, fertilized with a human sperm and then they're, they're uh, injected or spliced in uh, with some alien DNA, and then uh, the offspring is a hybrid of human-alien uh, form. And do you believe those hybrids... Um, are then walking among us on Earth, or are they taken back to some other planet, some other place? Which is interesting, because uh, one of Dr. Jacobs' uh, books that came out just a few years ago is, uh, you know, Walking Among Us, which uh, talks about how the aliens uh, are actually now integrated into our society and the process that that happens and how, how that all occurs. Uh, do I believe it? You know, I have an open mind. I, I wrote two books about a related phenomena, so I have to have an open mind. Uh, I would say it's entirely possible. Wow. Um, you give lectures about these topics and your books all around the country. What's different different about uh, the way you approach this from other folks? Well, I'm happily retired, so I don't have to this uh, money-making venture. And if you ask the lady who does my taxes every year, I'm not making any money. I mean, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a full-time effort. When you're doing research, uh, but the, the fact is, I don't have to. Um, I don't have to enhance uh, the work that I find. Um, uh, so, so I, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who make this a paying business, and it, that's their livelihood. And and I don't really have to do that because I have a, a a good government retirement based on 40 years. So I I think I can maybe be a little bit more subjective and you know almost be blase about it and you know not have to stand at the pulpit and, and beat it to death. I, I just try to tell the facts as I think I know them and, and let people make up their own minds without trying to force them into you know a certain belief because that belief is going to uh, make me financially better. Do you think it's important and, and do you do this work in part because it is important that people learn the truth? Well, I did this work because I'm trying to find my own truth here, and I'm only trying to, you know, run to bedrock all of the rumors that I heard through the years working at Wright-Patterson. So I'm trying to just convince only myself that this is a real phenomenon and there's some meat on the bone here. And if other people, it changes their ideas about it and it makes them more interested and they read about it more, then more power to them. I just think... It's an interesting story, it's educational, and it's my story, so I just thought other people might want to hear about it. And the um, the Fifty Shades of Greys is planned to be a trilogy. There are two books out now. What's the third one going to be about, and when will it be out? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but what I'd really like to do is I'd like to take my metal detector and go to one of these fights like Roswell or the Plains of San Agustin and find an interesting piece of metal and then have that metal tested by some experts and have them come back and go, you know what, this was not made on planet Earth. I mean, that, that would be a book unto itself. And it might be a small book, but I'd really love to do something like that. So I, I kind of want to get back to more of the trace cases where there's radioactive you know, trace, traces that are detectable by Geiger counters or, you know, maybe finding an interesting meteorite that somebody goes, hey, you know, we've never found one of these before. I think I'd like to put that kind of book out there and maybe follow up on some other unfinished business. Like there's a lot of stuff from Victoria's Secret Truth I just didn't put in the first book. And I think it merits 
mentioned. So, you know, maybe I'd finish up with a, another chapter about that. Um, I saw a documentary recently, and sadly, I don't remember the name of it, but it was about a, a doctor who was removing what were uh, thought to be alien implants from folks, and they followed one gentleman who had something in his leg. Are you familiar with that particular story or any of these implant stories? Oh, yeah, I, I'm very familiar with it. His name was Dr. Roger Lear. Right. And and uh, uh, the documentary was probably called Alien Scalpel after his famous book. That may be so, and, yeah. And Dr. Dr. Lear had upwards of about 20 patients, and they actually had uh, the videotapes. And when they took out these implants, some of them displayed very unusual properties. In, in one case, they claimed that it, one of the objects, and it was a small, like, you know, the size of a pencil head, was actually transmitting on a very uh, high-frequency, un- unusual, uh, uh, putting out an unusual signal there. And it's, you know, it's not connected to a battery or anything, and yet this thing is, is transmitting a radio signal. It's so, fa- so, yeah, Dr. Lear, uh, unfortunately, he's, he's passed on, but yeah. he was a, a pioneer in the field of uh, removing these implants and having them tested. And in some cases, when they did the elemental analysis or the isotopic analysis, they discovered that uh, this was metal not made on this planet. So, so clearly, when you're on a show like this one, you're going to be able to um, get a fair hearing and have a good, open, and honest conversation. How does the mainstream or general media uh, accept these discussions from you, or from anybody, for that matter? Um, I've been on a, a Fox morning show. I've been on an NBC morning show. Uh, these people were fascinated uh, to hear the story. Uh, you know, in all the interviews I've done, my first book came out in 2016. There's only one person that I wouldn't go back on their show because uh, halfway through uh, they started to pontificate about how this is BS and mm-hmm. I was BS and it was a planet Venus and it was reflective ice crystals and of course I, I let them you know babble on but for the most part you know I've been welcomed with open arms and people just want to know you know what I found out I, I've uh, public uh, television film you know one of my presentations, you know, a 90-minute presentation, and it's out there on some, you know, PBR station. I, I had uh, Fox uh, News come out and uh, record a whole 90-minute uh, presentation. So I'm not really getting any blowback in all of this, and, and I wouldn't expect any, actually. That's that's good to hear, because we often feel like uh, these topics are uh, maybe not quite ridiculed, but certainly looked at with a uh, raised eyebrow from mainstream media. And we think it's important that these things be discussed. Uh, and, and whether you believe or not, or you agree or not, just the fact that we can have an open, honest discussion about it, I think is a major step forward. Now, even the Dayton Daily News that, you know, anytime they get a chance to debunk a UFO sighting, especially if it's over right path, they do it in a heartbeat. And uh, they printed a pretty positive article uh, when I was doing a local presentation. That's probably, you know, a, a year or two ago. So, you know, they didn't give me a hard time. I thought the guy, his nigga's name was Barry Barber, uh, very civil during the interview. Uh, I just, you know, expected worse, but it was very professional. All right. So we're almost out of time here, Ray. Again, once once more, give folks an idea where they can pick up the books and follow more of your work. And I know that you do uh, lectures and speaking in any place that you might be showing up that people could come see you talk. Um, yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot of talks in the Dayton area this summer because uh, I live there. Uh, I'm going to be uh, I'd like to do the libraries because it's easy to book. It's free for me to do that. I know they pay me a little honorarium, so I'm going to be, uh, they can check the, the Beaver Creek Library. I'll be there this year, the Troy Library, Fairborn Library, Bellbrook. Um, yeah, I'm going to be doing a talk in Livonia, Michigan in July. I'll be up at the Headlands International Dark Sky Park in July uh, to give a talk. So uh, I usually post it on my website a couple weeks in advance. That's terrific. Once, uh, it, yeah, well, once again, your books are on Amazon. Books on Amazon, I, uh, they can look me up under Raymond Shemansky on Facebook. It's pretty easy. I said I, I put the schedule on my website. I don't. I put the schedule on Facebook because I'm usually there more often. So if gotcha. they want to check Facebook, uh, they'll get to see some of my appearances, my upcoming appearances. Perfect. Ray, thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your story. Uh, we hope to have you back on the program again uh, when you get the third book. 
Well, great. And tell Jason to show up this time because I got a question for him. <laughs> I will for sure. <laughs> I will for sure. Once again, thanks for being here and have a great night again. Uh, Ray Shemansky, check him out on, on the web and his books are on Amazon as well. And we have links to those books on uh, Beyond Reality Radio social media as well. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll wrap things up. It is Beyond Reality Radio. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. All right, so um, one of the great things about doing this show is that we've got a terrific audience, and we had a, a caller remind us that we had Gordon Lore on the program not too long ago, and Gordon also um, an alien uh, abductee and an experiencer and had an implant, uh, an alien implant. Um, I don't remember the details of that conversation because it's been a little bit of a, a time ago, but I do remember having it, and thank you for the reminder. Tomorrow night we've got a couple of guests for you. We're going to split the show in two. Dylan Avery will be in the first part of the program to talk about his documentaries about 9-11, about police brutality, and the new documentary called Magic Molecule about CBD. And then Lee Austin will return to talk a little bit about Flat Earth Theory. He's got some new ideas there he wanted to present. So a lot of great stuff coming up on the program. As I said before, John Hogue, the Nostradamus scholar and expert, will be with us next Tuesday night, so a week from tonight. I'm anxious to have that discussion about Nostradamus. We've got a lot of people that are interested in it, uh, so it should be a good one. Um, and in addition to that, please stop by all our social media sites at Beyond Reality Radio and mine as well. YouTube, JV Johnson, Facebook, JV Johnson, or on Facebook, you can also find it by searching JVJ Paranormal. So um, that's going to about do it for tonight. I, again, appreciate you all being here. Appreciate Ray Shemansky being a great guest. We're going to have him back when his third book in the trilogy comes out. In the meantime, you can find uh, Fifty Shades of Grays and its follow-up on uh, Amazon, or you can click on the links that are right in uh, in our descriptions of our social media and our other posts. And then the final thing, I want you to go to Scaracon.com. Check out what's going to be happening in Framingham, Massachusetts, June 7th through the 9th. It is going to be a fantastic event with a couple thousand people who all love the same things you do. Scaracon.com. Join us for that great weekend. That's going to do it for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night. I'm J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.